Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome to Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. You are listening to the Junctional Thinking Podcast with your host, Pierre Vigilance, and welcome to the show. Um, as we have talked about before, this show is about intersections, the intersections between many of the determinants of health, which are well outside of the clinical realm, and the the opportunities to improve health outcomes by working upstream of disease. So that's sort of the basic premise of the junction. But that junction has a number of different inputs. There are folks who have been on the show from finance, education, housing, public health itself, um, all the way through to technology. And we've had some really interesting conversations with former learners who have learned with me in formal settings and in informal settings too. And we're really fortunate to have a number of really great people in our network who understand that there are a set of skills, behaviors, and ideals that make us most effective at doing work at the junction. And those skills, behaviors, and ideals are embracing learning from any and every source, listening effectively, not being afraid of leadership, not being too um, eager to sort of not be patient about processes, and then being partnership-oriented. And so earlier on, it was late last year, actually, I reconnected with Jeff Reed, who has been on the show um, earlier this year, and he introduced me to some people over at WeWork White House who are doing some really interesting work themselves as entrepreneurs, using some of their own academic and life skill backgrounds to put themselves into a place where they now created businesses that are doing different different things. And so some of those folks are going to be, just a quick plug, at Well this Friday at George Washington University School of Public Health. It's an opportunity for people to meet community health entrepreneurs who are doing work in a number of different spaces. And today, I'm joined by co-founder of Causal Design, an economic analysis and evaluation firm, Keith Ives, who has agreed to join me for the show. We met a few months ago now and had a fantastic conversation. have connected again since then. And I'm, I'm just frankly very enthused by the notion of him talking about monetizing evaluation, which I know sounds sort of very anti-establishment. And I know some of my colleagues in traditional schools of public health are cringing right now. What are you talking about? Isn't he, why isn't he on a tenure track somewhere? <laughs> but... You know, that's not everybody's journey. And so I wanted to thank you, Keith, first of all, for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. And, and you referenced that us meeting and having a conversation a few months ago. And I remember uh, sitting down and just buzzing the entire time, yes. the energy and, and, and going back and forth in the ideas. And yeah. even for me, hearing and finally having a name for that intersectionality of, of, okay. of experience and education and ideas and, and health and economics. And, right. And, uh, so I'm excited to... You are a junctional <laughs> thinker, so, and, you know, and, and, and be proud of that because I think that it's something that I think a lot of people who have come up in the... In the and we'll talk a bit about your education in a minute, but have come up in the different education sectors that we've come up in and do the work that we're doing, this sort of mission-driven social impact work, they're all junctional thinkers to some extent, 
but the institutions that we've come from haven't necessarily always fostered all of those horizontal opportunities, instead of which they've chosen to foster the more traditional vertical opportunities where we sort of, you do your degree in this, so you work on this, doing this, getting your funding from this place, and it's very siloed. And I think that breaking across those silos, we can get so much more done when we operate at what I like to call the junction. So we'll open this up by asking you a bit about sort of not so much even starting with causal design, but today, where you are now is a function of a number of stops along the way. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got to this point even before the causal design thing started. Yeah, I think when my colleagues today hear about my past, they're really confused about how I got here. (laughs) And when my friends from earlier in life look at where I'm at today, they're just as confused (laughs) about how I got here. And and I think part of that, you know, as you were talking about these these pillars, uh, I think it was even thinking to myself, and and I think the description that came to mind is that I've always been very driven, but never been very focused. Ah, (laughs) good, good, good. And I think that helped. Uh, I graduated high school. I grew up in, in rural Georgia um, and was told I needed to go to college and, and knew I probably should go to college, right. um, but also didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. Right. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I joined the Marine Corps, okay. which is the next you know, obvious answer. Right? <laughs> That's what you do, right? um, and 2003, enlisted in the Marine Corps and uh, started my career doing logistics. And, okay. and I learned this, this was probably a really good lesson to learn early right, on, right. was that at the backbone of every organization, uh, every successful and scalable organization is strong logistics. Right. Um, and uh, spent uh, six years in the Marine Corps and through that time actually worked uh, in spurts part-time and, and, and full-time to get my bachelor's degree okay. in international affairs, okay. which was kind of a generic political science, liberal arts education right. that, uh, that was incredibly powerful for me because I found out that I was excited by philosophy. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was engaged in history, but I also really got excited about politics um, and left that degree and, and also the Marine Corps and got a job with the American Red Cross doing logistics for disaster relief. Disaster relief, okay. Right. And was that based out of the capital region here? No, that was based out of Denver, the Mile High okay. chapter, and was okay. doing regional responses okay. uh, as well as uh, the larger scale na- national disasters yes. as a responder doing mass care, sheltering, feeding, yes. material distribution, that type of work. Okay. Um, I, you know, and I wouldn't skip over, there were... There was a summer where I was also a barista, and I was also loading bags for United on airplanes. Some other stuff, right. <laughs> Doing yeah, those yeah, other yeah, things yeah. that were also critical skills. Uh, people skills, yeah. uh, logistics, like I said, right. admin. Uh, a, lot, a lot of those things that at the time I thought was addressing a cash flow <laughs> issue. But in, the re- in reality, I look back, and it was teaching me critical skills. Skills, yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely. When I was with the Red Cross, when I joined them, I had this vision of me you know, responding to the next big disaster overseas, right. you know, cause that was the image I'd built of the red cross okay. and what they did. Yeah. Um, come to find out that's not as natural of a career path with them. They have a domestic unit and they have a right. completely different international, international organization. One, right. Right. Uh, but I was able to, uh, through some work experience and applications, eventually get a job with doctors without borders, uh, yes. uh on their international response. And they teams. do do that. And stuff. they do yes, do that sure. stuff. Yeah. And, uh, 
a whole new education for me. Mm-hmm. I brought to them uh, at, a, at a young age, I think I was 24, I had my 25th birthday mm-hmm. in Haiti uh, right after the earthquake. Earthquake, yes. Right. And, and I brought a lot of experience in global logistics from the Marine Corps right, to that yes. experience, even at a young age. Yeah. But they also brought to me some very staunch humanitarian ideals and some okay. very anti-establishment you know, cultural uh, institutions uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that were another step in my education. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of coworkers there who didn't believe that I belonged there because there's no way that someone could have been a, a U.S. Marine right. And embody the humanitarian ideals. How did that work for you at that time, given that that actual dichotomy, if you will? Mm. Um, because it was still you, one person, and you didn't have to go and work for Physicians Without Borders. Right. You, know, you could have done something else. So you knew going in that there was possibly going to be that way. How did that work out for you? Yeah. Oh, well, I'd say, first of all, personally, I had no doubts. I, it was one person, and I knew... Uh, the Keith, you know, the, the, that's, they, they call it standing on the yellow footprints at Paris mm-hmm. Island. I knew the Marine inside of me, but I also knew the humanitarian. Right. And, and I also knew that a lot of the reasons that I joined the Marine Corps, which was this deep concern um, around some geopolitical issues, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that standing on the yellow footprints and, and enlisting was the way I could contribute to a solution. Yes. And I think as I grew, I saw that um, an investment in addressing inequality and addressing poverty and, and addressing the, the needs of a global population mm-hmm. uh, could also be served other ways. Right. <laughs> Humanitarian assistance. Absolutely. And then eventually, uh, even as I left Doctors Without Borders, looking for uh, more permanent solutions. I, right. I don't think probably any organization does uh, complex, humanitarian, remote, unsupported response the way Doctors Without Borders does. does. And they are the experts. Right. But... Those also aren't going to create solutions to the root causes right. uh, of perpetual, chronic, you know, healthcare care failures in northern Nigeria. Right. Okay. Uh, and that's what actually drove me back to school. Okay. And I said, "Hey, I've got a, I've got a skills gap. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, what that were, looks like. What were some of the problems? Because in Haiti, post post um, earthquake, a number of different challenges there with respect to in that being a country where infrastructure is limited to say the least, right? And where mm-hmm. there are significant historical reference challenges that have put the domestic the population at risk for all sorts of things just on a regular basis before any before even a, a natural disaster even occurs. What was going on in Nigeria that had you engaged there and was it at the same was it at the same tenor or was it something completely different? Nigeria was Nigeria was was complicated in that there were what I would call routine crises. You had seasonal uh, health challenges. Uh, And and at the time, uh, we were just coming off the tail end of a cholera response that, for the most part, the world didn't look at um, because we were looking at Haiti. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, there was a very concentrated um, group of lead poisoning cases coming out. Uh, And I think originally CDC had identified 
uh, a, a lot of essentially child mortality, higher ch- child mortality Mortality rates um, from lead poisoning. And Doctors Without Borders went in and and created, uh, responded, were the only ones actually responding to this crisis and found a way to treat remotely um, in villages. uh, Some of the, I think, most intense lead poisoning we've seen, at least seen people survive. Right. Um, And this was the result of local mining practices. Okay. And, And that's where it started to really strike me that these things have economic drivers right. behind them. Right. And it's not just, you know, you can look at it and go, well, this family has to make money. And for the last hundred years in this region, it's probably been through small scale gold mining. Right. Uh, but there's other drivers as well. Like in this case, Chinese investment in the region, bringing in heavy in, um, infrastructure oh, and expanding from small scale uh, mining in- initiatives to larger, to larger scale, scale. bringing in heavy equipment yeah. results in more dust uh, yeah. and, and in this case, the, the gold lines were embedded in lead. Yeah. Uh, and and now we're talking geopolitical concerns. Right. Uh, right. Now we're talking about you know international trade, its effect on household decisions, and and yeah. then in turn regional health effects that are uh, that are going to have and still have generational effects because of the 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 development effects of lead poisoning. And that's huge. So we've gone. You've gone from sort of seeing elevated blood lead levels in a child and you just took us down a path that ex- or up a stream essentially upstream to some significant multinational corporation engagement that knowingly or unknowingly created that downstream situation right. and for which there need to be steps taken at each mile marker upstream to mitigate some of those risks Absolutely. and address and I, them. I'm in that moment, I'm a logistician in the middle of nowhere trying to figure out how to maintain cold chain mm-hmm. uh, for, for medical supplies right. Uh, right. In, in the desert, in the near desert. Right, <laughs> right? Say, yeah. uh, not a cold place. Right? And, and you see this tension oh, that I feel like always develops between field units or operations or hospitals in going D.C. or, or Europe or you know the capital, the yes. home office doesn't understand the challenges here. Right, right. right. But then also, I, I was able to see that, you know what, home office is dealing with another challenge, mm-hmm. and it's going, how do we deal with this? How right. do we talk about this? Can right. we talk about this? Right. Because there's, there's significant private and political implications. Right, right. Okay. So Nigeria, with Doctors Without Borders, then you said that led you back to school. That led so, me back to school, and, yep. and uh, I... Applied. I, I actually dug around and and, and I found the um, international development policy program at, at Georgetown, mm-hmm. uh, and that connects me to Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. kind of get the full yeah. circle now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's what drove me back. I never thought. Uh, I didn't even know what policy was. And okay. in fact, I, I'd say in my first semester, when I found out that a, a master's in public policy meant I had to do a lot of statistics, I was very disappointed. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I thought that going to policy school was going to help me understand and be able to talk about and tackle some of those bigger challenges that I thought the home office was, was trying to figure out. And okay. that if I wanted to be in the home office and start tackling those level of projects, I needed to understand. You need to have that, that background. So how, does, how did policy school and, and being steeped in that or drenched, as we talked about before, in that education process, how does that lead you to this somewhat antisocial <laughs> way of thinking about 
policy and evaluation and that kind of stuff because yeah. you're not part of the you're a belt you're not really a belt you're inside the beltway <laughs> bandit if you will but at the same time you're not you're not from one of the one of the big houses in quotation marks yeah. that does some of this work so how did you get how did you make that leap across the river yeah so two steps here first step I started doing research with the university okay and and fell in love with the research mm-hmm. uh, which I don't think many Marines, you know, uh, we're supposed to be coloring with our crayons or something. But, you know, I, I realized that that I actually really enjoyed research and I love digging in deep uh, to these these challenges. But I also realized that most academic research is done where academia is the beneficiary. And and not the field site, not the community uh, that we're researching. Yeah. And that was the first step. Is I, I want to do research where uh, the community is asking the question and they're getting the answer, uh, not me. Uh, Did you find that, because that I, I don't know, and we have a lot of different types of people listen to this show, and some of them are going to be very much like, well, that's how it's supposed to be, right? <laughs> we ask the questions because they, quote-unquote, community, don't know what to ask. Mistake one, but still. Um, did you learn that? from within the institution or was this something that you sort of had to come to a realization about by virtue of doing the work because sometimes you know you find out that the water's cold by getting in it well without giving too many uh names and we don't want to leave too many bodies on the street (laughs) but uh, i was working uh on a research project uh in academia um supporting a faculty member and we were back looking at a problem in Nigeria. Mm. Oh, um, and, so and you, you had some context. <laughs> so I had some context, mm. and we were researching some really fascinating, and I think globally important questions, uh, but the local government, who was helping us facilitate the research and was also funding the research, uh, wasn't seen as the customer. I see. And we were saying, hey... It's going to be another month because we haven't really finalized the survey tool yet. And, like, you know, I, somebody's going to go on holiday. And, you know, oh, and, and they're going, hey, we've got to solve this problem tomorrow. Yes. Yes. If, if we were looking at a vocational training program and then we're going to give some stipends to some young men right. uh, as an incentive. Right. And they're saying, hey, if we don't get these incentives out, we're going to have young men in the streets. It's a time issue. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to avoid. Right. And, and that's when I saw, yes, there is a value to doing these very rigorous, very academic uh, clinical trials where, where we can really create some universal knowledge mm-hmm. and answer unanswered questions. Right. But there's also a universe of beneficiaries out there, communities, governments, NGOs, who need an answer on how to solve their problem tomorrow. Right. Uh, and, and need uh, to answer questions that may not be generalizable, that may not work one country over, but they still need the answer to that question in their community. And they need the answer in a timely yes. manner. Right. You're reminding me, um, a colleague of mine, um, Daniel Dawes, um, just published a book on the political determinants of health, which I, Daniel, I know I'm mentioning your name and your book here. I have not read it yet, but I know enough about it <laughs> to be a little bit dangerous in saying that he's speaking to, we talk about social determinants all the time. People are beginning to talk about commercial determinants. There are political determinants of health, like different policies, cycles of election, etc., that put things... But sounds to me as if there may be some academic determinants of health, too, which... <laughs> Undoubtedly. ...are, you know, some of these things that the factors that drive, quote-unquote, our timeline on getting the work done yeah. versus... 
the timeline that is needed by community for that work to get done in order for it to be effective and you know, implemented in a timely way for things to get changed. So, so I looked at the, the machine. Mm-hmm. That is the way we do rigorous, especially econometric research. I can't speak to a lot of other you know, fields, but the way that we do research, I'm assuming, looks like, a lot, like yeah. the health sector and a lot of others where uh, you go to school, you get an education, you try and publish as much as you can to yes. secure your teaching position, your tenure, um, or you go to a major think tank, right? right? Or you go into a government policy position. And it's okay. usually seen kind of secondary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, it's a yeah. second best option for a lot of true academics, I think. Right. Um, and then eventually, you kind of see a rotation. Uh, right. th- through these and you you go from policymaker to professor of practice or you know to, to, to a think tank to write and and you see a lot of the same names passing around and and when I was leaving graduate school I looked at my potential career paths and and you know understand at this point I'm graduating I'm finishing grad school a little bit later uh, I'm, I'm almost 30 and I've led Marines uh, I've I've traveled around the world you know and, and I th- I don't want to go and be a research assistant. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't want to, um, I want to lead people. I want to manage people, but also I want to do research that helps people make decisions. And that was what led in part to causal design was one looking around and going, Hey, the career path that I want doesn't seem to exist because I want to do research that helps people make decisions. What we we're calling now in the industry, decision focused evaluation. Right. Uh, and there, there wasn't a, it's still kind of dumbfounding to go, right. where do you go if you want to do applied research that results in people making decisions wow. based on, the, right. on it? Which you think would not be such a difficult place, given as much research as is funded by various sources, public and private. One would not think that it would be quite as difficult to find what you just described. But it's not nearly as easy as, as one might think. The voice you've been listening to is that of Keith Ives, the co-founder of Causal Design, uh, the economic analysis and evaluation firm uh, based here in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Junctional Thinking podcast on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. And what we were just talking about was um, what what is... what what is typical, if you will, with respect to trajectories and how this sort of creation of opportunities to do work that actually, not to say that traditional research doesn't make a difference. First of all, we're not saying that it doesn't make a difference. It has its value. It has its place. Um, But we are suggesting that, and it is probably true, that not all of that work necessarily is done with the end user as the primary target or client, if you will. It's done, it may benefit them at some point, but the timing of it may not necessarily benefit them, and the, um, the utility of what is reported out on may not benefit them. And you're talking about ways in which you've looked to change that and why cause of design essentially sort of came up. So you and how many co-founders are there? Of the, there are two of us, two myself of and Raymar uh, McCarinus. Uh, we were in grad school together. Mm-hmm. We did who knows how many projects together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got to the end of the road and said, well, maybe we should just keep doing this together. <laughs> so let me actually put a pin in that real quick. So, cause I have a lot of learners who are 
to, to have worked with who hate group projects. Yeah. Just like, oh, girl, don't put me to work with anybody else. I just want to do this stuff by myself. But you say it was you and one of your, somebody you were probably put with to work with mm. um, that ended up creating this, this company together. So tell right. me a bit about that. Yeah, well, one, if, if you hate group projects, academia may actually be a great place for you to stay. Uh, because most of us uh, live, live in a world and in a sector and an economy where uh, you don't get anything done if it's not with a team. Right. Uh, and uh, Raymar, oh, I, I could spend a whole hour talking just about Raymar and why it works. Right. Uh, the, I, I heard some things as we were starting up Causal, like, um, uh, you know, partnerships, right? Are the right. only ships that don't, that don't float. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, wow. you, you hear some real negative, uh, any, anything with, uh, two heads is a monster. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I heard a lot of negativity around, uh, rather the threats of bringing in partners and co-founders. Interesting. Uh, and what I would say here is that we, we got to test run through a lot of group projects and we found complementary and, uh, skill sets and personalities. Um, he's probably much more empathetic than me and he's also, Probably very happy that he's not on the radio today. Uh, <laughs> That's good. You're still getting balanced. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I also couldn't have couldn't have stayed the path this long. You know, there's oh. a the entrepreneurship is a slog. Okay. People talk about the trough of despair. Uh, I feel like I li- I lived in that trough for for a couple of years. Um, but when you're, I think, kind of like being a marine, when you're there with your brothers, uh, it, it's fine. Yeah. And I think when you're there doing it with a partner, right. uh, it's not lonely. No, no, no. Uh, and I think having a partner was critical. And, and also having job descriptions. He right. knew what he was responsible for. I knew what I was responsible right. for. And, and, and I think we, we navigated always from a, a perspective of fairness and justice okay. to each other okay. um, and generosity to each other. And, and, and it works. And now... You know, he's he's essentially part of my family. <laughs> right. Uh, we, we you know, we've been, two of us have, have practically been married for six years now. Uh, and you get all the ups and downs of that. Of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Because right. it's not always easy, just in the same way that career paths are not always straight. Right? right. And definitely you've articulated that with respect to yours. Now, the work of the course of design, um, as you. How long has the company now been? Six existed? years this six month. Six years, you said. That's right. So, oh, six years this month. So, yeah. sixth anniversary. Congratulations. What would you say has changed the most with respect to the work that you're doing from that first contract through yeah. to um, the more recent stuff that you've landed? And you landed some pretty big stuff just yeah. very recently. I saw an announcement about that. Yeah. No, and, and it is. One, it's exciting. This has been, we actually just had our uh, all staff kind of town hall yesterday morning and we reported back on 2019 goals and how we knocked them out of the park mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and kind of gave the attaboys to the, the all the people on our team who right. made that happen right. and also set 2020 as another big and ambitious year. Yeah. When I look back over the past six years, one of the things that has changed, not necessarily in projects but in perspective, and this is hard because I'm an idealist. I got in this to make a difference. Uh, I got in this because I wanted to see root causes uh, of community challenges addressed. Uh, and I believe most of the people on our team, I will no, actually all of the people on our team have that same mentality. They could just as easily be working for Doctors Without Borders, um, you know, living in, in a tent in the field, right. uh, really trying to be a martyr for these causes as they could be working for us. And right. we're, we're a for-profit company. Right. Uh, I think one of the biggest differences today is that 
we do look at it as a business. And I've finally understood what it means to run a professional services firm yes. and, and to think of uh, research in a matter in a matter of man hours and billable time and indirect costs and friend, you know the, you're getting into the business the nuts and bolts of it. We talk about full cycle career. I'm much less an economist today and much more probably a bookkeeper. Okay, <laughs> uh, and you know managing uh, a business. Right, and, and that's I don't think it's changed our product, but it's made our process so much more efficient. And it's also the I would say the not the crisis, but it's the piece that I'm wrestling with most today is how I build a business centered around doing a public good. Do you find those to be difficult things, difficult goals to meet at the same time? Or is one, do you find one easier than the other? No, I, I, I don't. I, I think for us, it's not difficult to do both because our product is yeah. centered around doing a public good. Yes. I think what's hard is developing and nurturing a, a culture within the team that says, hey, we look and act and smell kind of like a nonprofit, <laughs> uh, but you see ink at the end and we do have to make a dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think communicating that is hard. I think often then we go and all of our clients, for the most part, are nonprofits mm-hmm. uh, and the government, uh, but especially our nonprofit clients and going to them and not looking like the Beltway Bandit. And, you know, we walk into the room and, and I think sometimes they're expecting something that's kind of slimy and sleazy. And we're going, no, we're, we're a bunch of development professionals here. Not to say the door of the Beltway Bandits <laughs> no, is slimy no, no. and sleazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of this than it no, actually no, no, is. But it's what I'm self-conscious of. No, I think I, know what you're, I think I know what you're saying. It's sort of, and to some extent, that's the thin slicing that people have done based on what they've experienced before from particular sectors, yeah. right? The consulting sector looks a particular way to people. That um, I remember students would say to me, if you walk onto a particular college campus, you could tell the students who were in business school because they were all right. suited and booted, and the students who weren't in business school weren't. Right. Right? Um, and so you can make these generalizations about who's what based on their appearance, which is unfortunate. But then by the same token, we also take that steps out and sort of say, well, this person's coming from this particular type of place. They are from an X type of organization. They are going to act like this. Or they're doing X type of work. They're going to act like this. So we're going to take a couple minute break. Uh, You've been listening to Full Service Radio, uh, the uh, Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. with Keith Ives of Causal Design. And we'll be back in just a couple minutes to talk a little bit more about the company, what it looks like, and what it tastes like to actually work with them on the projects that make a difference.
Welcome back to Junctional Thinking, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance, and uh, the conversation today is with Keith Ives, who is the co-founder of Causal Design, an economic, economic analysis and evaluation firm. And we were just talking a little bit during the break about you know, this, this notion of, you know, you go into places and people expect certain things from certain types of companies or certain types of people. And, and we touched on this a little bit before with respect to conversations about diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, it's something that we just brought up in our conversation here about, you know, Keith, you say, so you came from rural Georgia, right? And yeah. You had an interesting conversation, it sounds like, with an advisor once you finished your graduate degree, um, who told you to sort of like, you know, it's time to pack, up, pack away, the, <laughs> pack away the, the, the kid from Georgia stuff because that's not who people are going to see you as anymore for a few different reasons. You want to talk a bit about, yeah. a bit about that? Yeah, I, 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 that, that's a lot of it. I, I sat down with, it was, a, it was a, an advisor, a, a mentor, um, who had known me through a lot of my journey, right? And had watched me develop, and had also cheerleaded me. So knew you, knew me, good, and cheerleaded me along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed up in Georgetown, and I had a, a leather jacket uh, with the state of Texas embroidered on the back, and I had long hair and a John Deere hat, and I rode my motorcycle everywhere. Okay, I, I didn't look like most of the kids on campus, right? <laughs> and uh, but I also kind of owned that. Mm-hmm. And I made that a part of my identity. You know, I don't belong here. You know, and, okay, and, okay. And, um, and then I get in all these math and stats classes, and I'm sitting here going, guys, I learned math in Georgia public school. I didn't go to private school okay. in New England with the rest of you know. And 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 I did hold that. Okay. Um, and as I graduated, and I became a peer to right. to to that cohort. Right. Um, and then I started causal design, and and then I was trying to become a peer to other analytical and research firms, companies, right. You know, companies, it, it was this, this dear friend of mine who said, Hey, it's time to take the chip off because the rest of the world doesn't see you who, for who you were. Right. They don't see where you came from. Uh, they see you as another white guy, economist from right. Georgetown with right. a firm that you're a founder in DC. Right. Um, and, and I think the point we, we were talking a little bit at the break was, you know, one owning that and one kind of being able to celebrate my own success right and going yeah i i, I did make it i don't know that we make it but i right um and and the other piece was also not feeling like too much of an imposter okay uh, and and saying no i do belong here okay uh i can take this jacket off or i can leave it on it doesn't matter because this is my home this is where i belong so it's about being comfortable and sounds like you have always been pretty comfortable with who you are yeah You've had that and still have, I think, a bit of that, I don't call it rebellious, but sort of like anti-establishment, maybe a touch of way of thinking about things. But I mean, it's, it's, um, it's honestly who you are. It's not something that you are putting on. No. Um, and I think that that authenticity is something that certainly comes out in our conversations, but I think it's also something that's worth having other people hear and understand for themselves. Um, Particularly because if we can't bring ourselves to the work or to whatever it is that we're doing and we're bringing somebody else, then we are being an imposter to some extent, right? We're not, we're not being our honest, full selves. Yeah. Um, but we might perceive that the scenario that we're walking into is one that doesn't want that person 
it wants somebody different. And, um, and I think we've all got a lot of work to do around sort of what that means. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a black guy with an English accent and sort of some people are just like, where did you get that from? Hooked on phonics? I mean, what, what is that? Um, and, and sort of I sh- there are things that people assume based on those things that may be completely untrue. Just as in the same way, I hear some of our students who will talk about, you know, the experiences that they had growing up um, are not at all similar to the experiences of this demogra- or demographic that's being talked about in class. We talk about sort of African-American experiences. Um, the, the kid who's sitting in the classroom might have come from an upper-middle-class neighborhood that has no idea what it is to be on any of the government assistance mm. programs that are being talked about that day in class. But people may look at that person and say, well, you can relate to this. You can sort of tell us about this. And um, sort of, I think that what I'm speaking to is us having a better understanding of who each other is or who we are and then being able to work with each other based on that not based on our presumptions of who people are right so that's that's like this bigger picture outside of any of the work that we're doing just the person-to-person stuff that we need to sort of be able to slice through early on yeah um but then there's this other piece to it, which is sort of the snobbery piece, right? <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. So you know, have people who will say, well, sort of, so what, what, are, your, what are your credentials? And you say, so what do you mean? So well, where have you worked or what degrees do you have? Right. And, you know, so you yeah. are somebody who is, you say, you're an economist without a PhD. It's sort of like, well, what does that mean? And what has that meant? <laughs> right. Yeah, I... I, I I get really wrapped up around credentials yeah. uh, and, and I, I'm torn on this mm-hmm. because there's one part of me, especially because I focus on international development yes. and development economics. We see a lot of passionate people without credentials right. coming and dabbling in, oh, in this space. And, yeah, yeah. I, and I, and I talk against that quite often mm-hmm. and go, you know, you wouldn't let me walk into your, you know, surgery room. Uh, <laughs> you know, wh- why should you walk in uh, to this, you know, complex economic uh, situation and and jump in right. Uh, so credentials do matter to some extent. Skills matter. Yes. Skills matter. Yes. Economics is interesting. I think particularly in the U.S. Uh, but if you say you're an economist, that usually means you have a PhD. Oh, I see. Um, that's not the way the government defines it. You right. know, if you work at Treasury and, and you call yourself an economist, it means that you know you met the the OPM yes. guidance, which I think is. Fifteen college hours in economics, or something okay. like that. You know, it's 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 a pretty low bar. Okay. Um, and when I was leaving my master's in public policy, uh, I was surrounded and I was taught all of my faculty were PhD economists, and they had taught me, you know, or maybe not taught, but inferred that what it took to be an economist was to have a PhD, PhD. in economics. Right. Uh, but then I got into the field, and yeah. I and I looked at the problems that I was being asked to solve. I looked at the way my brain uh, navigated problem solving, uh, the perspective, the lens, I think, is the better way. And I think that's what, in part, my education gave me was a new lens right. through, through which to solve you know, challenges, look at, look at problems and solve, uh, solve challenges. Um, and the only classification that made sense was an economist. Oh, I see. Uh, and I used the economics tool set both to interpret the world around me and to help solve 
uh, the challenges, the, the, problems. the problems in front of me. Right. And, and I've really become a champion for that for our staff, for other uh, you know, students who are graduating without a PhD or, or, or not. Um, your credential is your lens and, and the tool set that you bring. Uh, and I think right. in, in development economics in particular, you know, if you have a PhD, um, usually it means that you've, you've done a very, very deep dive into a very narrow slice of economics, right? right? And most of uh, our practitioners uh, who are coming out with a master's degree in economics or policy actually have a broader tool set uh, and a broader, you know, uh, kind of applicable uh, knowledge base uh, right. and, and are better suited to get in and, and work on policy challenges in that regard. And you used several words there that sort of, I was just scribbling here, so the application of knowledge to practice, mm-hmm. right, is, is different than just the, the, the acquisition of knowledge for dot, 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 right? So having a skill set that you can actually put to work is of greater value to you, anyway, as somebody running an organization like yours doing the kind of work you're doing, then it might be to another sector where the outcomes aren't necessarily the things that drive the bus. So can you talk a little bit about where and how you've been most, um, I don't say proud of, but where you feel like the work of causal design has been most impactful with respect to sure. the application of the knowledge to practice? Yeah. I think the one that always jumps to mind is uh, toilets, uh, just because everyone likes to talk about toilets, to, right? Yeah, Let's talk about toilets. I know, it's toilets. And, it's, and it's public health uh, related. We worked with a partner, a client in Cambodia, who they're a nonprofit called IDE, International okay. Development Enterprises, yep. and they try to come up with kind of market-driven solutions to, to poverty, uh, and in Cambodia, they were creating uh, the entire ecosystem to build, produce, market, and sell toilets in rural Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And this is a place where open defecation was, is you know, very much still the norm. And so they went in and were trying to figure out how do we get these rural communities to, to buy and use toilets. Uh, we partnered with them, uh, as well as another economics firm, uh, to understand what, one the willingness to pay of the customer. Mm-hmm. So this is even when even the most cash constrained, and probably even even more so for the most cash constrained yes. households, uh, you have to understand the economics of their decisions. Yes. And so we teased out what the willingness to pay was, and we ran experiments with finance options. Uh, you know, what if we offered a small loan or finance this, or what if we created subsidies? that reduce the price based on certain household characteristics or income levels, what would result in the highest purchase and adoption and use rate of latrines in rural Cambodia? Okay. That's, that's one. Today, that program actually was just uh, awarded an impact bond. So oh. essentially to scale up uh, one of the, the largest, I think, impact bonds in, in water and sanitation nice. uh, to help them scale up and expand that program even further because it's been so effective in getting, you know, moving towards defecation-free, open defecation-free communities. Right. Which, which bodes so much or impacts so much issues related to like you talked about cholera with respect to Nigeria, um, other forms of um, infectious disease, and just sort of the general infrastructure of a place and how you'd move from the more basic setup of things to slightly more advanced and then ever more advanced setups. We could talk about these these examples all day, and I'm getting sort of some waving signals here <laughs> that, that we, we are coming to a, a close here. But I think that um, 
in, in, in wrapping things up, if, if there were like two things that you would tell learners about being um, unafraid to walk into spaces where folks may have said that, I, that you're not necessarily the type of person who would walk into that space, right? No one said to you, you're coming into this program to start a business. Mm. What two things would you say to people? Sort of like, do this and do this. One, get really good mentors. Get champions, get advisors who are honest with you and good. give you advice. Good. And two, don't always take the advice. Love it. Love it. Sorry, I'm, I'm, that, was, that noise was me, was me <laughs> clapping because we don't rehearse these things. So it's just like, so get a great advisors. And that means create relationships with good people and then be willing to push back on some of that advice. Keith, thank you so much for your time today, for being willing to come on the show. I know this time has really flown by. We're going to have to do a part two. Um, the voice you've been listening to is that of Keith Ives, the co-founder of Causal Design, uh, an economics analysis and evaluation firm based here in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. on full service radio, and we will see you next time.